Hi, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Anna Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant at Amber. Today you'll be hearing an interview I did with Anthony Tazgol, better known as Taz. We spoke about a whole host of things, from his new book to storytelling and how to increase creativity in your organisation. Here's that conversation. So... Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Yes. Um, I, first of all, um, have done Latin, Greek and ancient history at university, which is perhaps a, an unusual place to start. Um, but I then took the, the obvious leap uh, of studying Homer, um, the original one, not the yellow one, uh, <laughs> and, and Virgil, uh, again, the original one, not the one who played for Liverpool. Um, and then decided that I should go into advertising, which was a bit of an odd leap, but I'd always been interested in like communication, uh, and propaganda. So in, in a funny sort of way, it wasn't that, uh, big a leap. Um, and then I worked in ad agencies as what's called an account planner, sort of broadly a, a brand strategist, uh, working with clients, different brands, different markets, different countries, and being a sort of a, a bit of a bridge between what clients wanted and what creative people wanted. Um, and that got me interested in all sorts of things, not just communication, but also how human beings make decisions, how we choose. Um, and after about uh, ooh, quite a few years of doing that, um, I got bored and decided that I was fed up with the fact that the answer to every question was a 40-second television commercial. Um, and so I, just, I got quite interested in training, doing a tiny bit of it. So I took the leap um, and went out on my own. And that was about 20 years ago. And since then, I've pretty much been what I call a man of many lanyards. I have huge numbers of them all over my kit or over my house in the kitchen. So I still do work with ad agencies and clients directly on strategy, advertising, communication and branding. But most of my time now is doing training. Um, so I train for the Chartered Institute of Marketing, the Market Research Society, Civil Service College, the Institute of Internal Communications, um, as well as myself, um, do a bit of lecturing, <clears throat> excuse me, and of course there's books, which I'm sure we'll come on to, uh, three of those, um, and also just a little bit of sort of freelance um, market research. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much um, that's pretty much my life, I think. Really. So you mentioned your books, and you just released a new one. Um, yes. Congratulations on that. And Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what it's about. Yeah, this one's called Incitations, and it's a deliberate. I'm a big fan of um, plays on words and puns. So it's a series of citations, as in expressions, uh, words, terms, um, de- designed to sort of incite thoughts or incite new thinking, because it's very common now for business books to be sort of reframed, not to the business books, but sort of smart thinking. So what I wanted to do was just sort of gather together uh, a whole list of sort of different ideas, terms, expressions, acronyms uh, that I've sort of come across, or in fact one or two that I've actually um, come up with myself, um, and just look at where they came from um, and to see why they are still sort of relevant now. So they cover everything from the ancient Spartans to modern physics to something that Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway was, was alleged to have said, to uh, all sorts of comedy and humour, which I always think is a, one of the ways of looking inside. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's quite a sort of diverse, eclectic collection. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of one of my obsessions, which, which is sort of 
how language and and how we speak and how we communicate is so incredibly important to sort of innovation and insight. Because I think in, in the marketing world, the sales world, the business world, there's a terrible tendency to sort of reduce everything to this mind-numbing, meaningless jargon. So it's partly an attempt really to sort of get people, again, to sort of come out of their their sort of zones of assumption and convention and just look at things a little bit differently. That sounds really interesting. Um, so quite, I was doing a little research on you before the podcast yeah. and I noticed that you use the, the term attention span in articles and interviews. I just wanted to know mm. what it meant in practice. Yeah, spam with an M. Yeah, um, one of the things in, in my second book, which is the Inspiratorium, which is all about insight, um, and in there I talk about what insight is. My definition is information is to be collected, but insight is to be connected. So one of my things about insight working with sort of clients and that is is you only really come up with real groundbreaking insight if you're connecting different areas or different domains. Otherwise, all you do is just do sort of incremental small sort of steps that don't really change anything. What I call the Kit Kat uh, view of the universe. So um, I used to work on Cadbury many years ago um, in what I used to call the pre-gorilla era, i.e. before their advertising was any good. Um, and we always used to wonder what the Kit Kat brand manage- management team used to do, because we used to assume that what they would do on a Monday morning was sit together and then say, OK, this week, what flavour should we put on a Kit Kat? And they'd sit and think, mm-hmm. mint. And they go, OK. And then they just like go home for the rest of the week. And the next week it will be what flavour? And be orange. So that's what I call the incremental sort of steps towards innovation but for me real insight and innovation has to be sort of radical and it comes from connecting different things so one of the things I, i'm a, a believer in is, is serendipity that actually guided serendipity could get people to sort of fall into new areas by accident the brain and particularly what i call the, the sort of system one approach what Kahneman in his book thinking fast and slow one of the sort of masterpieces of behavioral economics. Um, he talks about the importance of, of getting our unconscious to sort of mix and mingle and meld sort of new ideas together. Um, so I'm a big fan of serendipity and I try and practice what I preach. So a while ago, I was just sort of doing a prep, uh, preparing a talk and I was sort of getting into this area of, well, actually, if you think about how we communicate with each other, whether it's face to face or emails or brand communication we like to think that i'm sending a message from like my inbox into your inbox if you like in, in your brain and that, that's how we have this ideally idealized view of communication but then it occurs to me that the way the brain works is the brain filters out most communication it gets the brain is incredibly energy efficient and dependent so the brain cannot absorb everything so the, the metaphor of the brain as, as a sponge is incredibly unhelpful so I, I was typing this out on my on my laptop and i accidentally typed because the m and the n do you notice on your keyboard uh, are next to each other so i actually typed the words attention spam with an m i actually thought oh that's quite nice i quite like that because then what it allows me to say is actually most of what we say most of what we communicate probably goes into people's attention spam rather than their attention inbox and for me, having worked for, you know, several centuries with, with sort of marketing clients and, and ad agencies and, 
for people who do websites and everything else. It struck me as quite a, a useful way of summarizing all that thinking that most of the time you think that what you're saying is so important and so relevant and so useful and so factual that it's going into people's inbox. But actually, most of the time it's going into their into their attention spam. So that's that's why I've slightly sort of fallen in love with that typo. And am I right in saying that one of the ways that you think that people can get messages across so it goes actually into someone's brain is by storytelling? Um, and what do you have any examples of how this has worked really well? Yeah, I mean, I, I the first book, um, which was helpfully called the storytelling book, um, which I think can't be five years old now. Um, that was an attempt for me to sort of take some of the stuff that I've been writing and training on and, and turn it into such a short, concise advice um, guide, um, since it's probably 60, 70% of the training that I do, work that I do. Um, and as you say, I've always been fascinated by, by storytelling, having having studies, you know, people like Homer and Virgil and, uh, and all the great sort of classical writers. Because um, it, it struck me as very strange that I, when I moved into the sort of world of advertising and communication, that actually communication on the whole was pretty poor. So internal communication, presentations, I thought were pretty terrible. People would just literally blast through a series of slides. Um, I used to say, actually, I think it's, it, it might have even been in the book, that we, we're, we're at risk of creating a generation of decades. Um, I hope you keep that in. Um, so I, my, my point was that actually storytelling is, is the natural way that human beings are designed to take in information. So storytelling isn't just sort of soft, pink, fluffy stuff. It's how we learn about the world. So the reason why we tell stories to our children and why as children we learn and lap up stories on the sort of knees of our parents and grandparents is that it's precisely because they are fascinating and incredibly important way of understanding how the world works where we come from what's our role in the role in the universe how our tribe or our group or our religion operates and it, it struck me as, as, as slightly perverse that in a sense um the world of advertising marketing and communications had like forgotten all those universal truths of storytelling so what i wanted to do was sort of turn the pendulum back really away from this obsession with data and facts and rationality and messaging and more towards this, as I said, this, these universal uh, understandings or, and lessons of storytelling. Um, and that's really been my, one of my sort of great missions, I think, really. Um, and it's got, it's got worse. It's got harder, I think, as, as people have become more and more dependent on, you know, PowerPoints and um, bullet points. Um, you know, I often say, you know, stories worth a thousand slides. Because once you've got people in the grip of a story, you have got them. Um, and a mistake that too many people make too often, even when they're doing speeches, for example, is just to bombard people with facts as if that's going to work. So that's, that's I think that's the answer to the first part of the question. Um, in terms of which brands do it well, I mean, I, I can talk about the obvious ones. I mean, Apple's very good at it. Virgin, I think, have always been very good at having a, a brand story based on Branson's belief that, you know, he can come in and, and just stir up a market where things have just got very lazy and complacent. Um, and I think there are many other brands that do that. But there's, there's one I'll, I'll tell you a story about, which I use in my training, because it's not that well known. And it's for tailors. 
uh, shop in Australia, in Sydney, called Herringbone. And when I sort of ask people about this, I say, okay, what would you expect a piece of advertising or communication from that sort of brand to be like? And people say, well, you need to see lots of people sewing and lots of intricate, you know, intricate close-ups of needles and threads. And they would say, you know, how long they've been doing it and how good they are at it, which is fine, but it would be a bit worthy and everyone would sort of think, yeah, that's okay, but they just switch off and go into attention span. So this particular um, this particular company decided that it wanted to make not the brand the hero, but one of their tailors, the head tailor, the hero. And they focused on this man. It's a true story. A guy called Henri Beauvoir. Uh, he was originally from France. And he was born with a sort of genetic uh, defect. He had, had very, very small hands. And it's a classic story. So the first part is basically he had a terrible childhood. He was bullied. He was out of place. People commented on, you know, how he looked. And... You know, you feel quite sorry, and it and it sets up that classic first act structure from that slumdog millionaire, you know, of of all the challenges that he faced. Then the second act is where he discovers his talent. He just wakes up one day and looks at a cloth and realizes that he can do these incredibly small and intricate um, bits of sewing. And then obviously the third act is he becomes famous. Um, he works for his company, becomes the head tailor. And what I like about that story is, again, it's it's what it doesn't do. It doesn't focus all the time on, as I say, the facts and the generic attributes of what it is to be, you know, in this case, a tailor shop. It, it turns it into a story of a person. And once it's a person, and once we look at that person's life or challenge or journey, we start to do the one thing which storytelling is sort of unparalleled at doing, which is we empathise. And I think that's, for me, one of the sort of key things um, that we've perhaps forgotten how to do in how we communicate. So that's obviously a very like, creative way to look at marketing and mm. away from data. Do you think that this creativity can be taught or do you think that it's something you need to be born with? Um, I think clearly people are born you know, creative. I mean, I've worked for many, many years with creative people, uh, art directors, copywriters. Um, but one of the things that annoyed me about working in that world was there were actually people who were called the creatives, which annoyed me because it implied that everyone else wasn't. Um, and in a, in a humble sort of way, I like to think that, you know, myself and other people who were working in other aspects of the business could also be creative. So I found that slightly annoying and compartmentalising. But I think your bigger question is, you know, can you teach um, these sorts of things? And, and in the second book, uh, the Inspiratorium, I do talk a bit about what insight and creativity are and give some examples and exercises. And I think the short answer is yes. Um, the first thing you have to do is, as you said, I've got, it's not that I don't like data. I love data, actually, but I just think we've become reliant on it. But the first part of it is, is to let go of that obsession with data. So another acronym I, I talk about is DRIP, D-R-I-P, which is Data Rich Insight Poor. So I think we've, we've got to learn that, you know, data itself isn't enough. How do we turn data into insight, into something that's creative and original and innovative? Um, and in the spiritual, I talk about three or four things which I think help us to become more creative in terms of how we approach brands or problems or communication. So the first one I talk about um, is the idea of, of failure, of learning to, 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 to fail and be wrong. 
which again is not something that we're, we're generally told is a good thing. You know, even as children, we're told you know not to be wrong, not to fail, because failure is bad. Um, and again, um, even though you haven't asked me, I'm going to go into a bit more etymology because I do love my etymology. So, if you look at the word error in English, which means a mistake, it comes from a Latin word errare. And errare in Latin doesn't mean to make a mistake, it means to wander. So if you think the word erratic, that's where the, the same origin comes from. It has, you know, the, the idea is you drive erratically, you're wandering across the road. Um, or we talk about aberrant behaviour. So the first thing I say is you, you've got to learn to wander. And if in your wandering you make mistakes, fine, so be it. But that is exactly what creativity is. Creativity is not having safety nets. So that, that's my that's sort of one of my first things. Um, the second thing comes back to my my other sort of area of interest, which is behavioural economics and the power of emotions. And I talk an awful lot about one emotion in particular, which is surprise. And again, I think that's something that perhaps we've become a little bit sort of complacent about, because generally something is only going to be creative and insightful and innovative if it feels surprising. And too often in companies or in brands, we sort of give in to groupthink and just follow, you know, whatever else is doing or follow what the boss is doing or um, and unless something is genuinely surprising and we go, oh, that's funny. Um, it's unlikely to to really be creative and insightful. Um, and my third, just off the top of my head, my third example is about being an outsider. If you look at some of the great or the most common uh, innovations and um, new areas and markets and fields and working in the, in the creative fields and art and literature. A huge percentage of it comes from people who are outsiders, who come from a different country or a different era or have a different perspective. Um, so great artists very often have done that. Picasso learned everything he could about art and then sort of put it aside and started looking at um, African sculpture. So those those are three ways just to sort of, you know, just to kick off about how we can all learn to to be more creative um, in what we do. And what about in organisations? How can companies ensure that their employees have kind of the time and the tools to remain curious and a bit creative in their jobs? Um, and how can organisations build this into their culture? Yeah, no, I, I do quite a bit of that. Um, with different companies and again apart from talking about some of the things i've mentioned like allowing people to fail um valuing and actually prioritizing surprise um the thing about outsiders i'm a great believer that it's important to hire as, as an eclectic and diverse group of people as you can again the human tendency towards you know bubbles and confirmation bias means that very often companies high in the in the image of the person that's doing the hiring or in the image of the person who's running that company but it's really important to try and be eclectic and diverse and deliberately choose people who don't think the same way or have the same sort of expectations and prejudices and backgrounds and cultures as you do so that's that's the first thing i think um the second thing is um again what i, I try and sort of encourage amongst um companies that I work with is, is get them to sort of take time to do things which again aren't necessarily what they're meant to be doing I mean famously some companies have done this I think 3M did it Google do it whether you give people sort of a day a week three hours a week 
whatever, but you need to give people space to say, okay, go off. And I, I do this with some um, companies that I've worked with over the last few years. Okay, you have like what I call a diversity day. So everyone in the company or in the particular team, they get a day a month or whatever is feasible, and they're allowed to do anything in that day that they want. Obviously, that's legal. Um, as long as they come back and give like a ten minute summary of what they did and how it made them see or behave, see things or behave differently. So it's it's not necessarily about focusing on their company or their product. And again, I think this is one of the things I always say to organisations about breeding curiosity. It's fine understanding everything about the yogurt that you make or the car that you build or the bank that you help run. But you can only you can only have one foot in your market. You've got to have one foot outside. You've got to have one foot outside, looking at broader trends, looking at other things that don't necessarily look like they relate to your market, but will help you see things in a different way. So all these things, in terms of, of breeding curiosity, I think are really important. Um, it's obviously very hard for lots of companies to do that because they're so busy thinking about short term or sales or numbers or data um but I, I do think in terms of breeding that sort of culture it's really important and um you've run a course or you've run courses on storytelling all over the world mm. can a story brand ever the main the same when marketing on a global scale or do you always have to go into like local cultures yeah, again, it's one of those questions that I'm always wary of giving a sweeping, sweeping answer. One of the things I talk about on storytelling when I talk about it as, as the theory is the fact that we all, all of us on this planet, we all get storytelling. We all, I don't want to go down the computer metaphor because it's misleading, but if you like, it's our sort of, it's our system, our operating system. Um, you know, we grow up with stories, we learn about stories, we teach stories, we watch films, read books, etc. So storytelling is universal. And again, I do various exercises on the day where I get people to sort of do uh, exercises with characters, what I call the hero, villain, conflict and quest exercise. Um, so to some extent, there are universal themes, which is why so many uh, books, films, plays, whatever, um, are read and watched across the world with or without subtitles, Again, as a classicist, you know, I'm still I'm amazed by how, you know, Oedipus Rex or Aristophanes or Cicero is still being read and understood or the thinking of you know, philosophy of Plato or Aristotle, because those are sort of universal. So the half, half the answer to your question um, is if brands tap into something that is that universal, so again, even the example I talked about with um, Herringbone, the guy who set up that that tailor company, or was the head tailor of it. There's something in there that everyone can understand. The idea that someone is not like everyone else, they're punished for it, but then they find their role and they become a hero. So often I will say to, to brands, have a look. I can't guarantee it, but we might be able to find something that does tap into something that is culturally universal, what what Jung called the archetypes. On the other hand, though, sometimes that isn't possible. And sometimes the brand might be rooted in a local culture. It might have a particular sort of provenance, you know, a beer from Italy or a, a beer from France, Delartois, 
example that Belgian beer had a fantastic sort of, you know, culture and story about reassuringly expensive and the stinking French peasants, as it was called. Um, so often it's actually quite an interesting exercise to look at perhaps three options. One, does this work, brand work universally as a story? Secondly, does it have something which is universal about it, which can come out of its, its, its the brand itself and its provenance? Or do we have to say, no, there's something absolutely right that works at a very sort of local level and doesn't really translate? Because behind that question, I think, is the fear that lots of brands have, which is once you try and make something global, you dilute what it, what it stands for. So, again, I'm always reluctant to give a, a universal sweeping answer. So I hope that's OK <laughs> as a response. Well, you definitely answered the question. Um, I just actually have one last question for you, but um, yeah. you had to release your new book um, virtually, and I was just wondering <clears throat> how that went and how you did it and, yeah, if you were happy with how it went in this kind of crazy new normal that we're living in. Yes, yeah, I've been doing lots of talks about the new normal. In fact, I'm trying not even to say those words anymore because I wake up in the night screaming. Yeah. Um, if at the end of this, um, I'll, I'll give you some details. My, my Twitter is Taswell Hill. Uh, it's a clue to where I live in North London. Uh, and I'm Taz Taswell on LinkedIn. Because if anyone wants to see it, we recorded my virtual book launch. So it's about 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. If anyone's interested, I can send them a link. Yeah, I, I wanted to do it. I, I wanted to. Um, announced the fact that the book was out. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, as an ebook at the moment, I think the physical book is coming out soon. Um, and it was one of those things where we were all sort of groping our way into what this this COVID post during COVID world looked like. Um, and I just thought, right, we'll, we'll have a go. So I worked with the publishers lead, and I got um, a guy who's a broadcaster on talk radio called James Max. Who I'd been on his program a few times talking about marketing and advertising so i said to him look james would you mind just doing a q a with me uh, over zoom um and he said okay as you know as your friend i won't charge you this time um so what we basically did was a bit like this we had some sort of questions and answers and we had about i think 50 to 60 people uh, on zoom which was obviously you know a bit of a challenge by itself but it, it seemed to work um and we had a bit of banter. James and I swapped questions. He asked me, you know, uh, about the book and all sorts of other things. And for once, he didn't ask me about Brexit, which is quite a relief. Um, and it allowed me to talk a bit about the book. And as with this, allowed me to sort of go off on other, you know, tangents and things. Um, we had a mixture of, you know, work colleagues, friends, etc. And again, to do it globally was quite fun, which probably wouldn't have happened if it had just been sitting around a WeWork office uh, in London. Um, and it seemed to go quite well. You know, everyone had a little glass of, you know, alcoholic beverage. Um, and it was an, a sort of opportunity, as everyone's finding um, over the last couple of months. Even if you can't see people face to face and have that sort of human empathy and interaction, it was a reasonable second. It was it was not quite as good as the real thing. But it, it at least did the, the things I wanted it to do, which is it got a little bit of interest in the book. Um, people sent him some questions, which I answered. Um, and from a work point of view, it was quite nice because a couple of people were there who hadn't spoken to for a while, and I've been talking to them again since. Um, and to that extent, I thought, yeah, 
it's not bad. So I think as we're learning with with this, I won't say new normal, um, it's not the same as it was at the moment, but we're having to adapt what psychologists called habituation. We eventually are very good at, at getting used to you know new situations we we adapt to an evolving context um whether things will go back to normal um i don't know um i think i put a, tw- a tweet out this morning saying that um everyone who's been saying that you know after this is all over we're all going to be living in a utopia of empathy uh, i don't think that's going to happen if you look at what's been happening the last couple of days um so i'm not entirely sure um what the future's going to be look uh, what, what it's going to look like but at least with the book i got it you know i made an effort it was out there and it caused that you know it, it gave people a little bit of an excuse to have a, a glass of wine um on a sort of slightly cold april evening well that sounds great and um yeah congratulations again for the new book and thank you so much thank for you. taking the time to be on the podcast today pleasure great to speak to you absolute pleasure to speak to Taz today. I was really inspired by his take on creativity and storytelling and I can't wait to go away and read his new book, Incitations, discovering a world of inspiration through quotes, words and expressions. If you'd like more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out to the next Ambition podcast.